I'll tell you, joy is the key to a proper attitude in life. And brethren, we are all going to face all kinds of trials and struggles. It's not all a picnic. It's not all a, it's not all a hallelujah shouting match. I know that, friend. But joy is not created by possessions. Joy is not created by positions. Joy is created by a person, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And a good dose of holy joy would do us all well. And I'm not talking about silly putty religion here, brother. I'm talking about something that comes from being rightly related to God and being in the presence of God. I believe of all the people alive on planet Earth today, we should not be wringing our hands and worrying about the future and worrying about the end of the world and worrying about this and worrying about that. I believe of all the people in the world, we should have the joy of God in these latter days unparalleled to the rest of our society. Good to see everybody today. Thank you for the birthday greetings. Um, if, if, if I'm doing this right, if you walked over to the coffee table, you saw a sign that said, Happy Birthday, Pastors Jeff and Nick. My mistake was last week when I had the mic, I forgot to say Happy Birthday to Nick. So Nick's, Nick turned two. LAUGHTER so Nick's birthday was actually last Sunday as he stood up. My birthday was yesterday. Um, here's my thinking. You know, if it wasn't for Facebook and all the people on Facebook that, that want to wish you happy birthday greetings, you could completely go under the radar for most, most birthdays. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just a low-key guy. In fact, I told my, my, uh, my family, say, don't get me any gifts. They got me a couple gifts anyway. Um, but just, you know, going out to dinner, eating a good meal, Actually, I went to see Thor, which was like a really good birthday present. Uh, I'm not, I, I, y'all are Christians. I'm not advocating the movie saying you got to go. But if you want to see action and, of course, a little bit of, I mean, it's a funny movie uh, this time. It is a cool movie to go see. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. We're continuing in our series, Reasons for Joy. And we're going to finish out chapter 2 today. So I welcome you to turn your Bibles there. We're going to be looking at verses 19 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, then there are some stacked underneath the, 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 the middle column of seats, and you can use that as we're working through the scriptures today. We're going to read these verses out loud together, and you can also cheat and, and look at the screen if you'd like. So chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Let's read together. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to gather as a church. Uh, this is not a, a, a have-to, it's a get-to, but you do encourage us to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together and to do it all the more as we see the days approaching. And so uh, we take this time seriously, God, and we lend ourselves, uh, our hearts and our ears, our very lives, that these wouldn't just be wasted moments, God, but that we would hear from you. Uh, we all have individual things of concern to us. We have family concerns. We have friends and loved ones around the world that have concerns that uh, intersect our lives. And on top of that, we, we live in a world that's broken. And so uh, we need your help. We need you. Lord, without your presence, uh, we can't even have joy. And so uh, open our ears uh, to hear you and the good news of Jesus. Open our hearts to receive 
and, uh, and grow us. And I pray that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. So we're in Philippians, and we're going to finish out chapter 2 today. And my question for you today is, who do you want to be like when you grow up? Who do you want to be like when you grow up? That's a crazy question to ask a room full of adults. But my point is, uh, if you're an adult, does that mean that you can't have people that you look up to? If you're an adult, does it mean that you don't have people that you aspire to be like? And if you are an adult, does it mean that you can't have role models, regardless of what age you are? I think having people that we look up to is instinctive in us. It's part of being being human. Uh, we naturally admire people for all kinds of things. Think of the things that you admire people for, for their intellect, for their looks, of how athletic they are, of the gifts that they might, um, that they might show in everyday life, um, their charm. Uh, I'm a people watcher. I hate going to the mall, but I like watching people. You know, that, 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 I mean, isn't that crazy? I mean, y'all like do that? I, I, don't, I don't like shopping. I, I'd rather somebody shop for me. But I will go to the mall just to sit down in a bench and just watch people go by. And, and I mean, what do we watch? We watch um, tones of voice. We watch people's actions. We watch facial expressions, uh, all those kinds of things. And we take, we take notes of people's words and of uh, really their tone of voice. And based upon you know, the ways that we are attracted to different people, and I don't mean that in any kind of a weird way, uh, we oftentimes imitate or, or mimic them. And we mimic people in a lot of different ways. We're reading them through a magazine. Man, I like that look. I like that hairstyle. So we, we sometimes imitate people in the clothes they wear. We mimic hairstyles. We mimic language. We even mimic, imitate ways of life, the ways that people live. In fact, our role model is going to have such an impression on us that without even knowing it, you can start talking or acting or in many mannerisms that you have as a person behaving like another person. Think of a little, a little boy or girl that, uh, that tries to eat cereal with, the, you know, with their mom or dad and tries to pick up the spoon and you know, do, do the same movements that their, their parent might do. Um, I have figured out that the older I'm, I'm around with this at, during birthdays, because my dad called me early, early yesterday morning. I'm listening to my dad, and I was like, I sound just like this dude. You know, and sometimes uh, we'll think, well, you know, it's just DNA. I was destined to be kind of like, like my dad. But I think, you know, a little bit beyond just um, what the, you know, DNA inf- uh, injects into us, I think it's the effect that people might have over the, over, uh, over the years of life, especially those that we're mimicking, those that we are trying to imitate. So in uh, our text today, Philippians 19, uh, 2, 19 through 30, Paul gives us role models that we are to look up to. Uh, he doesn't say those words, but I think he is commending to us Timothy and Epaphroditus because he is saying that they, like Jesus, have exuded a certain humility and unity in the church, and they've been obedient to the point of giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. And so he's offering us really three Christian, uh, Christian examples um, that were living their lives worthy of the gospel. And uh, the reason why he's given us these is because he's, uh, he wants us to see not just the, the, the image of Jesus, but real living human beings that are doing the same. Before we jump into the, te- to the text, I think it's appropriate that we ask this question. I mean, why do we even need role models? Have you ever thought that for yourself? Why do I need a role model? And I think it goes back to what I said earlier, it's part of our humanity to, to want and to need to see people who are um, ahead of us doing things that we might need or want to do as well. We want and need examples in life. We need help getting our bearings, so to speak, and watching other people who are navigating life both chronologically, think uh, having an older brother or a sister or a cousin that's a little bit ahead of you, and you, I mean, you just like them, you're around them, you want to be like them, and uh, because they're a little bit ahead of you, you get to see them succeed, you get to see them sometimes fail. He's like, well, I know I shouldn't do that because I'll get in trouble, but I really like the way he's doing that, and it really helps us to see someone go before us that we, that are setting the example for us that we can imitate. But it also works uh, in the spiritual realm as well. Paul says that spiritually speaking, we never stop growing. In fact, in Ephesians 4, 
Paul says that God gives us a fourfold ministry. He gives it to the church, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists. And he says that these are given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. And then in verse 13, he says these unique words. He says, until all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. Now that's a lot of words, and I could, I could, you know, uh, so humbly paraphrase what Paul is saying. He's he's giving us this idea that we never grow up. Spiritually speaking, we're always growing, and the person that we're trying to grow and imitate is is Jesus. Jesus is our standard. So when I ask the question, as a Christian. Who should we want to be like when we grow up? I mean, the, the, the answer is Jesus. All right. So that's, you know, Jesus underline it. It's like that's that's what we should be aiming for. We should want to look like Jesus, be like Jesus, act like Jesus. And Paul paints this beautiful picture, uh, particularly in in Acts uh, in, in Philippians chapter two of this Jesus, the God who was in eternity, who incarnated, became flesh, lived life on this earth. Uh, lived it perfectly as a human being, and by God's plan, was crucified on a cross to die for sins that he did not commit, and then God raised him from the dead. In Ephesians, uh, in Philippians two, uh, Paul tells us that for his humility and his obedience, God what exalted him, gave him the name above every name, to the glory of God the Father. We should want to look, be, act like Jesus when we grow up. But here's my thing. Have you ever noticed that Jesus sets a high standard? I mean, the, to say I want to be and act and, and, and do all the things that Jesus did is to say that I really want to be perfect. And I don't know if you've realized this in your life, but being perfect takes a lot of work. In fact, if, the more you try to be perfect, the more you realize I just can't do this. And I think that's why Paul gives us, he gives us living examples. It's like the, uh, you ever, uh, so the Olympics are coming up. I'm enjoying seeing uh, the sort of the, the commercials and some of the specials that they're doing leading up to the Olympics in Korea. I spent uh, thir- 14 months in the army in Korea. And the, I mean, the, the South Koreans, they're going to do it up right. I mean, it, this is going to be a great winter Olympics. But this is like the, 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 the couch potato. He's watching the Olympics and he sees a guy in a particular sport doing, um, um, doing his thing as an athlete, and he wins four gold medals. And the dude looks over to his wife and says, "Sweetie, tomorrow morning I'm going to get up. I'm going to start training, and I'm going to be in the Olympics four years from now. And oh, by the way, I'm going to win me a gold medal." And that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, I mean most most Olympic athletes, I mean they they are training and preparing their whole life for the event of going to the Olympics, trying to win a gold medal. And re- in a sense. To say that we want to imitate Jesus, mimic him in his character, in his obedience, in his surrender to God, all those just great traits that we read of Jesus, it's almost like saying that this guy uh, that wakes up tomorrow and decides he's four years from now, he's going to be in the Olympics. I mean, it's almost that ridiculous. In fact, I would say waking up and deciding you're going to be in the Olympics four years from now might be easier to do than saying you're going to imitate Jesus. And that really is why God gives us just like real people. The Bible gives us role models, men and women whose lives have been used um, following Jesus and, and really chasing his grace. Who, though they, though they do it imperfectly, we get to see them grow up in the nitty gritty of, of everyday life. God gives us real people that serves as examples. And in our text, we see three. Three examples. The first of those is Timothy. And Timothy, in him, we see the example of selfless service. Look at verse 19. Paul says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you so that I, too, may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him. A little bit of background to Timothy might be helpful for us, especially if you haven't read a lot of the Bible. According to Acts chapter 16, Timothy was a native of Lystra in Asia Minor. He was the son of a Jewish woman and a Greek father. Very likely he grew up uh, with mostly a Greek upbringing because uh, in Timothy's story, as it's unfolded through much of the New Testament, we learned that he was not circumcised. And Paul eventually got him circumcised as he was traveling around ministering with him. 
Um, He was likely raised by a single mother, and we say that because his dad's name is never mentioned beyond Acts chapter 16, verse 1. We learn in 2 Timothy that, uh, that Timothy's mother's name is Eunice. His grandmother's name is Lois, and I think the Bible is giving us those references so that we know a little bit about his, his upbringing. We can tell a little bit about who people are based upon the origin of their names. Both his mom and his grandma are described as Christians. So Timothy grew up in a house that, got, that, that the God of the universe was worshipped. We don't know how Timothy came to faith, but very likely he came to faith through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas during their second missionary uh, missionary journey. So that would have been around Acts 15, 16, and 17. And like many of us, Paul, uh, uh, Timothy began a, a life as a Christian. He grew as a Christian. At some point, he's called in a ministry, and Paul, seeing this, um, has him accompany him on some of his missionary journeys. Uh, at some point, Timothy becomes an elder for several of the New Testament churches. Um, he's included as an author in three of Paul's letters to include this one in uh, this letter to the Philippians. Probably the, 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 the biggest superlative that we read about Timothy in the Bible are, are, are these words. Paul considered him a son. And you'll see that in, in this text here. And the compilation of things that Paul will say about Timothy, particularly in chapter 2, but in other places, letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, sort of gives us the the commentary that Timothy had a selfless devotion, not just to, to Paul, but really to Jesus. And so as Paul explains to us who Timothy was, we know that this guy was sold out for the Lord. Uh, looking at the text, particularly in verse 19, Paul is sending Timothy to Philippi for his own sake, and it's a dual purpose. Paul says, I need to send Timothy to Philippi. And I think the the, the two purposes are, firstly, uh, Paul wants Timothy to be able to tell the church in Philippi how Paul is doing. They have been supporting him for 10 years. He's their founder. They know he's in jail, and Timothy's going to go and tell them about Paul's condition, status, that he really is okay, that, he, that although he's in prison, there's some joy in his life in regards to who he is and what God has called him to do. He's perfectly okay with, with what the, the life that God has called him to. The other purpose, though, is that Timothy might bring news back to Paul at some point of how this church is doing. If you are a guy that founded the church, and I mean, there's no Facebook, you can't just whip out your new iPhone 10 and like, you know, face IDs like, hey, there you go. And uh, and call them up. There's no phones. And so communication was was by letter, by courier and by people going from from place to place. And that was sort of what Paul uh, wanted Timothy to do. But I think in these in these very uh, exhorting words of what Paul says about Timothy, uh, he's praising Timothy for the, the qualities in his life um, that helps them know that this guy's like an MVP. Like of all the guys I got on my team that are helping me go around the Roman province and start churches and make Jesus known, Timothy is the most valuable player. So I, I, that's how I read what Paul is saying about Timothy. And he's holding Timothy up as a model of selfless service for these believers here in Philippi. There's two primary things that Paul is saying about Timothy, two primary traits for which he praises Timothy. And the first of those is his like-mindedness. Look at verse 20. He says, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Um, when I say like-minded, I'm thinking of that, that particularly that first phrase. He says, I have no one like him, particularly like him. Paul is talking about the relationship that he personally has with Timothy. And the way that we would say that in our culture is they're like soulmates. Soulmates in that um, the, their vision and their mission and their goals in life, particularly their goals from a perspective of knowing and spreading and living the gospel are, are all aligned. It's not that they don't disagree about simple things, just like we disagree about simple things with people that we know and love. I think he's saying here, our core values line up, our priorities are meshed well together, but more importantly, we're on the same page in terms of our ministry, the ministry that God has called us to. Paul has been talking about for this whole chapter, 
really starting at the end of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2 about unity. Unity between um, relational people in the body of Christ, uh, unity in the church. And he is really saying, hey, you know, Timothy and I have this great unity between each other that helps us uh, you know, be on the same page in terms of spreading the gospel. And so he, he's saying that Timothy and I are, are both concerned about the Philippians' welfare, but particularly more uh, in Timothy's life. And that would have been a big deal for, for Paul because in verse 21, he echoes something that he said uh, in, 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 verse, in chapter 1. His previous statement was that he noted that there's a lot of people that seek their own interests as they're, even as they're going about spreading the news about God, but, but not this Timothy. Timothy's different. Timothy's selfless. He wasn't like all the other people who were doing things, even talking about Jesus for their own sake, boasting about themselves, building themselves up. Timothy was looking out for the Philippians first, which means Timothy was selfless. And so, uh, firstly, he talks about the, the, the like-mindedness of Timothy. And here's the second trait that he brings out. He says that Timothy has proven worth, and he's talking about character here. Character. And he spells out what that looks like in verse 22. Verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. He's talking about his devoted service both to himself, uh, but also uh, manifesting out of that how he served other people. But, but focus on particularly what he says in regards to Timothy's like a son to a father. What do you think about when you think of your relationship to your father? He's painting us the ideal picture of a son that, uh, that has a good relationship. They, they're in unity. They're thinking the same. Timothy's uh, submissive. He's probably obedient to what Paul has told him to do. And he's talking about that he's, got to, he's gotten to do ministry side by side with Timothy in a very special way that he has not uh, gotten to do with most people. And the, the, the important thing to remember here is that Paul is not married. He has no kids. And so in a real sense, Timothy has not only become his son in the faith, you know, the, 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 the gospel bringing them together, he's become like a real son to him. And, and, and uh, just I, I think it, to sum it up, Timothy was he was Paul's go to guy. He was the very person that Paul would choose to go to Philippi, to the church, to minister on his behalf. And so let's ask ourselves a question. What can we learn from Timothy's example? And I think the first thing that stands out to me is, is character. In fact, I like to say it like this. Character is king. Verse 20, he says, there's no one like him. Someone said that character is who you are in the dark. So Paul is, is, is saying, hey, Timothy's the real deal. Who you see in person is who he is in the dark when he's by himself. Uh, Evangelist D.L. Moody says, is, is, again, who you are when no one's looking. It's who you are in the dark. And of the many things the Bible teaches about character, at least 90% of those uh, qualifications for leaders in the church are in one book of the, uh, one book of the Bible, 1 Timothy 3, where Paul is speaking to Timothy about setting in elders and deacons for the church. And the number one quality that he talks about amongst you know, the traits that a person should have as a spiritual leader in the church, he's really like talking about character. And so this is kind of outside the text, but as, as I would see it, you know, this, this idea of character, not just for leaders, but just for the ordinary Christian. I mean, this is what we... Um, this is what should be known about us as people of God. And so what are the realities of character? These come from a, an Acts 29 pastor by the name of Bob Thrune in, his, in, a, in a book that he created for people wanting to become elders in the church. But I'm going to give you five realities of character formation. The first is character is formed over time. Character is formed over time. So you don't just wake up in the morning, you know, from, from a asleep and just have good character. You don't just have, wake up in the morning and have good godly character. Character, the character you currently have is formed over time by small choices and decisions that you make in the day in and day out of everyday life. Think of how your life has been shaped and molded by the decisions that you've made, good decisions and bad decisions. Therein is how your character is shaped. Second reality, character is discerned in community. That means it's subjectively evaluated. Uh, theologian Don Carson says, character is more caught than taught. It's more 
picked up by constant association with mature Christians through modeling. And so how do you develop godly character? If, if Don Carson is right, then you should be around um, godly people close enough that you can mimic and imitate the things that they're doing. And I would say that's why, um, that's why we commend being in community with the church as an important part of your spiritual growth. Why? Because it takes people in community to, to really tell you what your character is like. If I'm um, bringing someone on, someone on as a staff member of our church or calling on someone that thinks they're called to ministry definitely as an elder, then it's that their character is determined not just by what they think of themselves, but more and so is, is determined by uh, what outsiders think of what, what would your neighbor say about you in terms of who you are as a person. And so characters form over time. Character is discerned in community. Thirdly, character is best evaluated under pressure. We can all put on a good act for a little bit of time, can't we? If we have to, we can put on a show, but it's not how you act on your best day. Rather, think of the worst day that you've ever had. When tensions are up, you're anxious, you got pressure around, you know, this way, pressure that way, uh, you're exhausted, you're emotionally drained. What's your character like on those days? I would tell you your behavior is, is determinative on those kind of days, and that's probably what you, uh, what's true of your character. Fourthly, character and wisdom usually go together. In the, in the Proverbs, we read that the Bible tells us to get wisdom. People who have cultivated biblical wisdom have usually applied that wisdom to themselves, and if you do it right, it leads to godly character. Fifthly, character is shaped through the faithful practice of spiritual disciplines. We talked about spiritual disciplines about a year ago, um, so you can get that on our podcast. But, I mean, what are the spiritual disciplines? It's It's you know, reading your Bible, it's, it's praying, it's solitude, it's silence, it's applying those disciplines to your life. And the, the thought is, don't expect to have godly character if you haven't put in a little bit of time in the, in the, the, the discipline of the things that it would take to be godly. All right, so that was for free. So what do we learn from Timothy? Timothy's example, I think the first is character. We learn that character is king. And if I think if we could call Paul up today and say, well, what did it look like uh, to see Timothy being formed as a godly person? I think many of these points here would, would come out. And these are the things that I think all of us need to, to have the character that we are expected to have as a Christian. This is what spiritual growth looks like, to grow in these things, but definitely to be a spiritual leader in the church. Here's the second thing, the importance of mentoring relationships. And we see that particularly in verse 22. Again, Paul says that Timothy is like a son to a father. Um, but this is, this is not, uh, you know, the Bible is not sexist. The Bible was written to a, a patriarchal society. And so sometimes when it looks like that, the Bible is dismissing the role of women in the church. It's not necessarily doing that. It's just the culture that they lived in. But in a particular place in the Bible, the Bible does speak to the role of women mentoring other women. Titus chapter 2, verse 3, we hear that the older women are to uh, teach the younger women and train the younger women to, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so this idea of, of men mentoring other men, women mentoring other women is important in terms of Scripture. And we see that coming out uh, definitely in Paul and, and Timothy's relationship. All that to say, Paul holds Timothy up as a selfless servant and a leader that other believers can look up to. Here's a second example. It's a, the example of suffer, a suffering servant, and we see that in Epaphroditus, verse 25. I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and messenger and your minister to my need. Here's the truth. We don't know a lot about Epaphroditus. Here's the real truth. Everything we know about Epaphroditus is in these couple verses right here. We have no idea who this guy is except for these few words here. We don't know how he came to faith. Uh, we don't know any of his background. Uh, commentators say that Epaphroditus is a pagan name. It's, it's taken from uh, the goddess Aphrodite. And so very likely Epaphroditus' parents were worshipers of that false goddess. Um, what we do know 
about Epaphroditus comes from this letter, and we know that he was a member of the Philippians church. Later in chapter 4, when we get to that, uh, we will see that he was tasked to bring uh, a monetary gift to Paul from the church at Philippi, and subsequently he stayed on to help Paul in some unknown other ways. Verse 27 tells us that he got sick along the way, and, and Paul uh, comments that he got sick, uh, a, a sickness that led to, to near death. And then Paul says these interesting words. He says, God had mercy. So that means whatever happened, it looked like, like he was going like, to kick the bucket. And for whatever reason, uh, God turned his physical condition around so that he revived and he went on to finish the task of staying with Paul for some unknown amount of time. And so the re- really the rest of this text from verse 27 all the way through verse 30 is talking about Paul needing to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi um, as soon as possible. Like, like, dude, you need to go back to where you came from. And, and really the text pulls it out in, in a couple different ways. Uh, Paul is saying, firstly, your, your church, for whatever reason, is stressed out. And so there's rumors spreading that you've gotten sick and that you've died. And so let's just go ahead and send you home. Uh, so that they won't be stressed. And then the text tells us that Epaphroditus himself was distressed because he knew that his folks back home and all of his friends in his church uh, knew that he was sick and had potentially uh, it was near death and that he was distressed just thinking about his, his, his family at home being distressed. And then thirdly, and this is funny to me, um, Paulus says, and, and your stress and the church's stress is stressing me out. I'm like, I'm anxious over your anxiety. And so you need to go home. So that's, that's really what the rest of the text is, is, is about. But here's what I think is special about Epaphroditus. There's nothing special about him. Interesting. There's a character in the Bible that's, um, I mean, he's lauded. He's praised for his suffering, uh, just being a suffering servant, and there's nothing special about Epaphroditus. Now, some people try to um, say that he is the Epaphras or Epaphras from um, the, the book of Colossians and Philemon to, to beef up who this character is in the Bible, but that's actually a different person. A lot of times, uh, every once in a while, the Bible will give a person a short you know, a, a nickname. Think, think James and John in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. Peter, Peter got a nickname, Rock. Um, actually, his name was Simon. Jesus called him Peter, and then he got the name Rock. Um, but this is, I mean, Epaphroditus is, I mean, a standalone guy. This is the only place he's mentioned in the scriptures. And he is nobody. He is just somebody serving in the church at Philippi. He, he maybe was serving faithfully and he saw a need in the church. He made himself available and was willing to do whatever it took to fulfill that need. And that led him from Philippi to Rome to be with, to be with Paul. But here's the thing, and this is... Uh, this is the, the implications of this text. Epaphroditus was a nobody. And in fact, the, the fact that they sent this guy who was very unknown on this important mission of supporting the, the missionary, the apostle Paul, and he potentially failed in that mission. Think he got sick. He almost died in this ancient Near Eastern culture for for a church or any organization to send someone to represent them and that person, that representative, fail in that task, it would have brought a lot of dishonor and shame on them. And really, that's akin to what Epaphroditus did. He almost shamed them because he didn't complete the task. But we see Paul sort of covering up in that. And this is how he does this. This is how he does it. Let me give you an example. So it's November. I don't know if you're checking your calendar. There's three weeks to, th- to Thanksgiving. In your mouth watering already. So say you've planned out your meal. Uh, you, you've decided the family's going to come to you, and you've divided out the meal. Everybody's going to make a different, a different part of the meal. Somebody's bringing the, uh, the, the, the carrot souffle. Somebody's going to bring um, the stuffing. Somebody's going to bring the green beans. Somebody's going to bring the beets. You know, beets, right? Everybody's got a part of the meal. Uh, you're going to leave the star of the dish yourself, the turkey. You're going you're gonna to like make this massively beautiful, delicious smelling, tasting turkey so that no one has to have the, the hassle of that to bring that to the, to the meal. And the day of Thanksgiving comes. Everybody's there. Kids are running around. It's just like a jovial atmosphere. 
um, family and friends loving on each other. It's mealtime. Everybody sits down at this huge table. The, the, the food is all on display. It's like the Last Supper kind of, a, kind of a thing. It's just glorious. We're thanking God for his bounty. And then because you're the, I mean, you've got the star dish. You bring it out. You're, you're carrying it out. And little known to you, the cat is like right by your foot. And you trip and oh, guess what? You drop the platter with the turkey on it. And I mean, of, of all the embarrassing things, you fall on top of the turkey, and it's, and it's like all over you. I mean, who wants to eat that, right? Nobody. Nobody except for the cat and the dog. What would you feel? Obviously, you feel a little bit embarrassed. There's, there's shame because that was the only meat that was like being prepared for the, for the meal. And all the meditarians around the table is like thinking, oh, my gosh, he just messed this up. Think of all the things that are going through your mind as the host of the family and your friends and you have ruined everybody's Thanksgiving. It's going to be like probably 10 or 20 years before you invite people back over. Because, I mean, you just you're thinking about how embarrassed you are. But think about the people around the table and what they're thinking about as well. The younger people got their got their smartphones out and you're already on Instagram. We're like Facebook live in this like. I came, to, I came to Pastor Jeff's house, and he dropped and fell on the turkey. And now my, I mean, it was funny, first of all, but what am I going to eat now? I mean, you have all these thoughts going through, but mostly you have a little bit of dishonor and definitely shame um, in this moment. And, you know, that's a simple uh, explanation here, illustration, but that really brings up to, I mean, I'm trying to bring out this idea of, of what was going on between Epaphroditus and Paul and his, and his home church. Uh, the, 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 the titles of respect and companionship that Paul gives Epaphroditus in chapter 25 really become more significant in the communication to his church because it, it doesn't show the, the fact that Epaphroditus nearly failed in his mission. It highlights of, of how he served him and, and suffered for the Lord in the role that God had given him. And so Paul is really showing Epaphroditus as a model servant for us, a model suffering servant. Look at the words that Paul uses to define the relationship that he has with Epaphroditus in verse 25. He starts out by calling him my brother, fellow worker, fellow, fellow soldier. You've heard Christians use the word brother, right? I mean, a lot of people uh, use that, that word brother. In our culture today, we would, of course, say brother or sister. Paul is not leaving out the, the, the women, the females. Again, it's a patriarchal society. Uh, women would not have even had the, the, the pleasure of receiving and, and reading one of these letters. They would have been in the, in, the, in the crowd listening to it. And so that's why Paul is using the word brother. But that's one of Paul's favorite words to address people, people who had uh, professed faith in and started following Jesus, brothers and sisters. And Paul is saying here, if you follow Jesus, if you're a Christian, then God has adopted all of us into his family. If you're a Christian here today, if you've professed faith in Jesus, repentant of your sins, God has gifted you the the Holy Spirit, then Paul, the, the Bible calls you a brother or a sister. And he's saying that of Epaphroditus. He also uses these words, that you are a fellow worker and a fellow soldier. And if you think about Paul and his status in the church, the apostle of apostles, one of the, you know, the first and greatest missionary that the church has ever known, the one that started the church that, you know, that's grown to what we know now, um, there's no doubt Paul was up here and Epaphroditus was, was, was way down here. Paul uses the word fellow to, to say, you know what? I, I know I'm an apostle. I don't need to brag about that. But we're on, we're on equals. And we're equal in two ways. We're equal in terms of our status in the church. I've called him a brother. We're equal in terms of our labor for the Lord. But we're also equal in terms of uh, the way that we've um, battled, the spiritual warfare that's gone on just in the, the opportunities that we've had in Philippi and in Rome to advance the gospel uh, with all the, you know, the, the, the gates of hell coming against us. Epaphroditus and Paul were, were equal men, equal men who had labored and fought side by side together. And then Paul adds these, these two other titles. He says he's a messenger. 
Uh, messenger is the Greek word apostolos, apostle. He's calling uh, Epaphroditus an apostle, not a capital A apostle, but definitely one who has um, traveled from Philippi to Rome to, to be the representative of his church and help the gospel to flourish there. And then he calls him minister. And that was a person, I mean, that was a, a name that he, he was using to, to describe what he was doing. And for Paul, this was personal because Epaphroditus was sent personally to minister to Paul. And so you have this, this, this event. Epaphroditus, who's really a nobody in the church, is sent from Philippi to represent the church to Paul. He gets sick. And the very thing that he's supposed to do, give some money, but also take care of Paul and Paul's needs, he can't do it. Why? Because he's sick. And so he's become useless to Paul. And Paul is, is turning this thing around. He's saying, no, it's Epaphroditus. He, he suffered for the Lord. And because he suffered for the Lord, he really has served the Lord. And he hasn't been a, a, a burden to me. He's been your servant, but he's been a messenger to me, not a mess. And those are, those are important words. And in, in these unique words, what he's saying is, I mean, he, he, he's serving as a bridge. He's connected uh, the Christians who were there, these brothers and sisters, to, to me in Rome and all who are with me in our partnership for the gospel. So what can we learn from Epaphroditus' example? I think the first is serving Jesus will cost you. Serving Jesus will cost you. And you've heard these words before, but have you taken it for what those words really mean? Putting the needs of others above your own means that you might have to do a whole bunch of things that you don't want to do. You might have to change your schedule. You might have to travel somewhere. You may have to put yourself in an environment where you might get sick and that you might have to depend on God to strengthen you in that, in that sickness and that weakness. You might have to open your home. You might have to open your wallet. You might be exposed to both opposition and persecution, the type, the, the type that Paul says exists both in Philippi and in Rome. And so I think that what we're looking at here is if you follow Jesus, it's going to involve some kind of sacrifice. But here's what I think Paul would add to that. There's been so many people who've testified to this, that yes, following Jesus is going to cost you. But then I think they would, they would qualify that by saying it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it because there's this intangible thing on the inside that happens when you bless other people. When we get to chapter four, we're going to read Paul talking about uh, that the Philippians, above all the other churches, have participated in the, in the giving and receiving of their resources. And he commends them because he says, you know what? You're not going to get anything tangible out of this. In fact, you're giving up the very things that you've labored for. But he says, guess what? God's going to count this to your credit. And that's something on the inside. There's, there's a spiritual maturation. There's a partnership in the gospel that doesn't amount to material things, but it amounts to the blessing of the Lord for you giving up something that God has blessed you with. And, I mean, you can't, you can't buy that. Here's a second thing that we learned from Epaphroditus. Faithful service honors God. You know, we live in a culture that, that glamorizes those who are in the public, uh, public media, don't we? We idolize beauty, success, intellect, giftedness. We idolize world champions. Think of the Houston Astros. I was happy for them because, I, I mean, I didn't, the Nats lost like a long time ago. But here's the thing. When we, when we sensationalize people and beauty and success and glamour and all that stuff, then a lot of times it just makes it easy to overlook the ordinary. Which means we underappreciate faithful service to Jesus. I mean, there's a lot of people faithfully serving Jesus and they don't stand out. And we can just look right over them and think them insignificant, just do nothings. Which means it's easy for us to fail to honor the type of greatness exemplified in people like Epaphroditus. Jesus, Jesus asked this question of his disciples. He says, who's the greatest? And the conversation ensues, and uh, the end of the conversation really is the, the least of these. And that's sort of a different context than what we have here, but I think it's kind of applicable. Uh, I mean, Epaphroditus is one of those least of these. He's, he's nothing significant. 
And so when we see someone serving Jesus faithfully, here's what Paul tells us we should do. We should encourage them and thank them. We should honor them. In fact, in verse 29 and 30, he says, a person is worthy, that kind of person is worthy of an appreciative and thoughtful welcome. He says, welcome Epaphroditus. He's worthy of your welcome. And so let me ask you, who do you want to be like when you grow up? Paul has shined before us two examples, Timothy, Epaphroditus, two Christians living worthy of the gospel. There's actually a third example. And, and of course, Paul isn't going to do this. But what we can pull out from this, from this text is, is Paul is the third example. And I think Paul highlights uh, a couple of things that are worth, are, are worth mentioning. Paul's own example of leadership, influence, and submission to God. So the first thing that I see, really, as Paul's talking about Timothy, uh, think of yourself as a, as a leader here. Um, Paul gives public praise to, to Timothy. And I can, we don't know a lot, a lot about Timothy, uh, a lot about Paul, except for what the Bible tells us. But if we read between the lines of the Bible, Paul's probably this no-nothing, like, like no-nonsense, like I'm not going to heap a bunch of praise on you if, you if you're not deserving. If you're not like working hard, laboring hard um, for the gospel and Jesus, then and Paul's not going to keep a bunch of superlatives on, on anybody. And so his words about Timothy aren't wasted words, uh, but they are really effective words. He's giving public praise to Timothy for a reason. Think what it would feel like, um, what it would be like to have a godly leader affirm you like Paul does Timothy here. And if you're Timothy, think of what that would, what that would do to boost your, I mean, your confidence and how it would encourage you when you're being sent out to do some very difficult missions among difficult people um, like Timothy was, not just here in Philippi, but around the world that he was going. I think the thing that, to, to think about here is, is Paul is praising Timothy to encourage Timothy in the role that he had given him as an elder of the church, but but Paul's words aren't just for Timothy. When a leader publicly praises other people, what he's doing is he's setting a, 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 an example. He's, he's serving as a role model for other leaders, but also for those who would be in the position of, of serving and working and laboring well so that they too might be exhorted in those same ways. So public praise, the second would be the influence of leadership. I've talked about this a lot, so I won't, I'll, I'll glance over this pretty quickly. You know, we don't know exactly what Epaphroditus' ministry career looked like. That might have been the only significant thing that he did for the church, and then he died, you know, and, and went, to, went to heaven. We don't know that. But Paul really salvaged his reputation, okay? And, and what Paul used was he used his influence, very surely, even though distance separated them, the, the, the Philippi church probably had some concerns when they heard the rumor that Epaphroditus had gone there, had gotten sick, and had become a burden to Paul. Yet he, Paul turned that around, and he used his influence to say some very um, kind, praiseworthy words of Paul, uh, of, Tim, of Epaphroditus. And I think what, what the... the, the the message here is, if you're uh, in a position of leadership, a respected position of leadership, your words matter. Your words matter. How you respond, the tone that you use, how you treat people, especially when things go wrong, because things go wrong, can really set the, the tone of, of other things, and they can um, help, of, it can shape how others react when things aren't quite right. Here's the last thing, and this is the most important to me. Perhaps it might be important to you. We see Paul modeling submission to God here. And Paul does this in his whole life, but he, we see it coming out in, in our text here as well. Paul demonstrates consistently his awareness that really his whole life, every circumstance, both the things that he had control over, particularly things that he did not have control over, were, were under Jesus' control. Paul had surrendered his life to the Lord. You hear Christians say a lot, Lord willing. That's our way of saying, Jesus, I really want you to do this, but I kind of sort of, I mean, I know, I know you're in control. We don't want him to be in control because we want to be in control. And so we say, Lord willing, this is going to happen. Paul kind of says, says a Lord willing, but it's, it's more of a surrendered Lord willing. Paul uses these words. Um, he says, I hope in the Lord. I hope in the Lord Jesus in verse 19. In verse 24, he says, I trust in the Lord. 
And what Paul is doing is, I think he's modeling before us what it looks like to, to be truly submitted to Jesus. We could say here that Paul is resting in the Lord's um, sovereign control over his life. Paul's like, you know what? I know the Lord is going to provide for me. In fact, back in chapter one, he says, I'm locked up in prison. I don't know if this is going to end well, but I've resolved that whether I stay in jail and Caesar's judgment over me is, is death, I get to go be with the Lord, which is far greater. But I know he's probably going to spare me and I get to minister more in my life to you, which is OK with me, too. And so Paul was he was satisfied with that. Paul was not preoccupied with himself so much that he couldn't allow the Lord to control his life. He was fully submitted to God and all that, that would entail. What about you? If, if Paul, the greatest missionary, apostle of apostles, is modeling this for us, this submission to the Lord, what does that mean for you? Are you willing to follow his example? What would that look like for you in, your, in the way that you approach life, the way that you plan for your future, the way that you um, plan out college if you're a young person looking to, to go to college after high school? How would that look like in your career path, what you have planned for you? If you're single, what would it look like in terms of you looking for a husband or a wife? What about your pursuit of a promotion, a career move, how you use your money, how you invest it? how you spend it, how you give to the church and to organizations that need your resources? How would it affect your dreams for your future, for retirement? And I think the challenge here is Paul is modeling that if you're willing to follow Jesus, aiming to grow up in him, then firstly, you got to be humble about the plans that you make, but also be surrendered that Jesus has, firstly, the wisdom and the right to overrule what, what you're even praying for. And those are hard words to, to echo, but this is what Paul is modeling for us. Let me conclude with this. We all need Christian examples. Paul gives us three, three role models, three men that show us what happens when the gospel transforms us from the inside out. What's that? We begin to look like Jesus. We begin to act like Jesus. We begin to be like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for Paul's um, commendation of two servants, both Timothy and Epaphroditus, and, and we would add that even the example of himself. Lord, uh, we confess we, we all need people to look up to, regardless of what age we are. Whether we're four or 14 or over 40, uh, we all need people, both in the physical uh, uh, physicalness of growing, growing up as human beings, but even more so in a spiritual sense. We need people who can model for us what um, loving and serving, suffering for Jesus looks like. And so thank you for giving us these real life examples in the Bible. And God, we pray that, that you would help us. Uh, we fall short. Sometimes we see these examples and we resist them. Sometimes we see them and we're like the, the person that wants to train for the Olympics and uh, we know that it's going to be a, a, a tall task to get there. And I pray that uh, we would be encouraged, not discouraged from these examples, and they would exhort us to, um, uh, to, to keep looking, to keep trying, and to do that in the Lord, not in our own strength. And it's in Jesus' name that we love and pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.